blast off into the potosphere with TGP Nominal. Extra. Hello everybody and welcome to this special edition of TGP Nominal Extra. Now we will be having a special guest on the show in a little while, but before we introduce our guest, of course, I've got to introduce John Berger. How are you doing, sir? Hi! How's it going? It's good morning to you, isn't it? It's good morning. <laughs> yeah, It we- is. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Good morning is an oxymoron, but we'll, we'll just go with it. <laughs> we, we often have to do these... Uh, specials early in the morning i mean i know you've done one earlier than this before oh yeah and we know that had disastrous results (laughs) shall we bring in our guest absolutely joining us on the show today from nasa's goddard space flight center is astrophysicist dr amber strawn Thanks for coming on board, Amber. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, not only is Amber an astrophysicist, she is the Associate Director of Astrophysics Science Division at Goddard. She's the Deputy Project Scientist for James Webb Space Telescope Science Communications and a Study Scientist for the Wide Field Infrared Survey Telescope. Amber, can you tell us a little bit more about the work you do at NASA? Sure. So at the the sort of ground level, I'm an astrophysicist, and uh, my research involves galaxy evolution. So I'm really interested in how galaxies change over time, and in particular, how star formation processes and black hole growth changes over time, and how all of that relates to galaxy interactions. So I use the Hubble Space Telescope, as well as telescopes on the ground, to study these physical processes in galaxies, to see how they change over the course of you know, the last 13.8 billion years of the universe. So that's my research, and then as far as my, my other roles um, on the James Webb Space Telescope Science team. That telescope, of course, will be the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, It's been in development now for over two decades, and we are nearing the finish line, which is awesome. Uh, So we're launching in 2019. So there's a team of scientists that work alongside the engineers in the development of these big missions at NASA, and so I'm on that science team. And then um, in my role as the Associate Director of Astrophysics, my primary job there is sort of um, amplifying the work that the the scientists in our division are doing. So the Astrophysics Science Division is a collection of, um, we have about 300 people in the division. Uh, A lot of those are scientists and then lots of support people. We have some engineers that are matrixed into our division, postdoc students, a whole big group of astronomers and, um, and other folks that are doing the work to build missions to help us learn more about our universe. Now, if there were somebody, you know, younger people out there that were thinking of following your footsteps, uh, what advice would you give young people for becoming an astrophysicist? Well, in terms of um, of schooling, in order to be a research scientist, so someone that, that actually works on data and writes code and publishes papers and sort of could contributes to the scientific body of knowledge, you really need a PhD. So, you know, you start out in undergrad. I got my undergrad degree in physics. So um, for astrophysics, you know, physics or astronomy, either one of those are are good majors. Uh, I got my undergrad degree at the University of Arkansas in physics. And then I went on to um, Arizona State University where I got my PhD also in physics. Uh, But all along that path, I knew that I wanted to do uh, astronomy, astrophysics research. And so um, that was my path. And really the PhD is, is a 
sort of a requirement to being a research scientist. That being said, there's lots of other fun stuff to do in astronomy. If you, uh, even for people who are really interested in astronomy but may not want to go the research science route. So I know a lot of um, a lot of people who have sort of an undergrad degree in astronomy or physics, and then a master's, who do um, you know astronomy outreach. So there's a really vibrant community of people doing science communication and astronomy education and astronomy outreach. So there are lots of different ways to have a career in astronomy, um, in addition to just being, you know, to being a research scientist. And I think in general, my most sort of general basic advice for students in particular would be a couple of things. The first thing that was really important for me is to find really good mentors. So to find people that will help you uh, figure out, you know, what you want to do, figure out your goals, and then help you to achieve your goals. And then also just to find extra stuff to do. So. I feel like, you know, when I was in high school, I did a couple of summer academic camps. And when I got to college, I did a couple of uh, internships at observatories and those sorts of things. So all those extra things that you can do are sort of stepping stones to the next thing. Public speaking is quite a big part of your job. And you've appeared in at many events and on television shows. Now, events that have stood out for me seem very unusual for NASA to be involved in. You've got things like South by Southwest Festival and you've got the San Diego Comic Con. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your time at those events? Because that must have been a bit surreal. <laughs> sure. Yeah, both of those events, uh, South by Southwest and Comic-Con, are, are two really, really fun events. And it's it's been so much fun to be involved in, in speaking at some of those. We've done panels at South by Southwest the last, I guess, gosh, four or five years. Um, and then Comic-Con, same thing. I've been involved in a couple of panels out there for the last couple of years. And you know, the, the reason that NASA does these things at, a, at the most general level is because part of of NASA's original charter is to um, disseminate the information that it learns about the universe and about exploration and discovery to the world. So that's part of our original charter is to tell the world about the things that we do at NASA. So at the most basic level, you know, that's why I do those sorts of things. In terms of those particular events, South by and Comic-Con, NASA has a real focus to reach out to maybe non-traditional audiences. So, you know, we know that if we go to a space festival or a science festival that people are going to love NASA. (laughs) But, you know, South by and and Comic-Con both are sort of different audiences. You know, there you get the very tech savvy people that may not be necessarily interested in space or, you know, for Comic-Con, of course, you know, the the comic book fans and those sci-fi fans, um, which are people that are, again, maybe not there to learn about NASA or to learn about space, but they're always so engaged and so interested. So those are some really, really fun events that that we love to do. Comic-Con had quite a Star Trek connection for you, didn't it? So, yeah, this last panel that I was on, um, part of it was a Star Trek connection. So we were on with Robert Ricardo, and it, yeah, that was so much fun. I think that, you know, the reason that NASA resonates so much with that community is because, you know, I think science fiction and NASA sort of have, it sounds weird, but they sort of have broad common goals in terms of, of looking to the future, of trying to imagine technologies and imagine things that are just beyond what we can do now. So they're both very forward-looking and I think they're complementary in that ways. And I think they sort of feed off of each other. You know, a lot of the things you see in in older sci-fi, you know, end up being sort of reality and and sort of vice versa. You know, I think Definitely. I think it's a, a really fun interconnection there. 
one of the reasons that you're chatting with us today is about the the upcoming Geminid meteor shower. So what is actually going on over the next couple of nights? Yeah, so the the Geminids meteor shower is uh, one of the the best of the year, probably the best of the year in terms of the number of meteors you can see. For those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, of course, it's going to be cold in a lot of places, but it's really worth braving the cold to get out and and see this this awesome meteor shower. So tonight, you know, the night of the 13th, 14th of December is when this meteor shower peaks. You can still see meteors, you know, a couple of days before and after the peak uh, as well. And so, yeah, the Geminids is a, is, it's a really good one. You can see upwards of 120 meteors per hour, which is quite a lot. A few years ago, it, it went up to over 200 an hour. So, um, yeah, it, it, it should be a really good show tonight for those um, who have clear skies. So what makes this different from other meteor showers? Composition? Um... What what's what makes this one so spectacular? A meteor shower happens when the Earth, uh, as it's traveling around the sun in its orbit, it encounters a collection of debris, uh, and of course, it's those little you know those little s- s- chunks of space rock uh, that enter the atmosphere and glow. Those are the meteors. Those are the shooting stars. And the bigger the the meteor the meteorites, the bigger are meteoroids, the ones that are in space. The bigger that they are, the the brighter that the resulting meteors are. And for this particular meteor shower, the Geminids is the result of debris left over by an asteroid. Now, most meteor showers um, result from debris from comet, but this particular one is uh, from an asteroid. So what makes this asteroid have a tail of debris? What what makes it create that? Most asteroids uh, in the solar system live in the asteroid belt, this orbit of, um, of asteroids in between the orbit of Mars and Jupiter. And then similarly, most comets live in the outskirts of the solar system, really far away. But uh, occasionally a comet or an asteroid asteroid will get perturbed and then its orbit will change such that it sort of sweeps through the inner solar system. And when any object like that makes uh, a pass through the inner solar system, it just sort of leaves stuff behind in its trail. And when these trails of debris intersect with the plane of the Earth's orbit, it's that sort of intersection of debris with the the Earth's orbit is what leaves these little piles of space stuff that, that causes the meteor showers. Right. Now, we've had a couple of questions sent in from members of the UK Astronomy Group and some of their children as well, and also from pupils from Winslow Combined School in Buckinghamshire. You've kind of answered one of the questions, but uh, Archie Wilson, age 10, and Sophie asked the question about how many meteors will be coming into the atmosphere and where is the best place and time to see them and and do we know what kind of speed they'll be traveling at? The the, the Geminids generally are somewhere between 80 and 120 meteors per hour uh, which is quite a lot you know that turns out to be about two per minute so if you go outside and just generally look up anytime after dark if you stay outside for you know more than a few minutes you should see a couple the rates vary so you know, de- depending on a lot of different things, it, it could be, you know, more or less. But the Geminids is a consistently good meteor shower in that you can usually see quite a few. You know, we're expecting 
anywhere between 80 and 120 meteors per hour. It could be more. A few years ago, it was over 200 an hour, so it could be it could be more. But um, go outside, look up, and and you'll see them. The actual peak of the meteor shower is after midnight, but it starts earlier. So anytime after dark, you should be able to see them. The meteors, um, it's called the Geminids because it the meteors seem to radiate from the constellation Gemini, and that constellation is a little bit hard to find. But if you go outside and look for the very recognizable constellation Orion. Gemini is right above Orion in the sky. So look for those three bright stars right in a line. That's Orion's belt. And then the, the meteors will seem to radiate from a point just above that. You just go outside and look up and you'll probably see them. Do meteors tend to burn in different colors or are they just as like white? Yeah, they definitely can be different colors. Um, most of the, the sort of smaller ones, they just they do just look white. But occasionally you get a larger you know piece of debris that can glow uh, in, in sort of different colors. And that would have to do with uh, the composition of the, the particle. I grew up in, in rural Arkansas in the southern United States and I grew up watching these meteor showers. And um, I specifically specifically remember once, I can't remember which meteor shower it was, I think it was the Leonids in November, but I remember one meteor shower where I saw a bright pinkish purple meteor and it was really bright and it sort of, you could almost even see it breaking up in the sky. That was one of the most spectacular ones I've ever seen. And then another instance I remember as a kid, I was watching the Perseids meteor shower in August and that one, it uh, has less meteors per hour. Um, but it often has very bright meteors. And I remember being outside, I'd been watching, you know, for a long time and I just sort of looked down um, and I saw the ground light up. And then, you know, I, my head immediately pops up towards the sky and there was a huge, like a fireball type meteor, um, but it was bright enough to light up the ground and make me look up. So most of them are sort of fleeting and will only last a second or two and are sort of white in color, but you could definitely, there is a chance you'll see really bright ones. Um, and there's a chance you'll see ones that are different colors. Uh, anyway, th this comes from a coworker's son, and he says that I've been told we can calculate the movement of the astral plane into the past and future using Kepler's calculations. How reliable are these calculations and how much do they rely on Kepler? I can definitely talk a little bit about Kepler. The Kepler Space Telescope, of course, has been focused on finding transiting exoplanets, and it's been absolutely transformative in our understanding of the universe in that it has told us basically that exoplanets, planets orbiting other stars outside of our solar system, that they're common, that they're everywhere. So you go outside tonight to watch this meteor shower and if you look up at a star, any star in the sky, chances are it has at least one planet around it. And we've learned that from the work that Kepler has done. And so that's been an, an absolutely paradigm shifting, you know, discovery that we, we've gotten from Kepler. Now, whilst we're on the, the talk of space telescopes we, we have to talk about hubble now we've had a, a question come in from finley wilkes who's he's age six and he would like to know how big the telescope is now he just said telescope now i'm assuming he meant hubble so the hubble space telescope generally is about the size of a school bus its main mirror is 2.4 meters in diameter the mirror and the tube and the whole assembly is about the size of a school bus and it was launched into space on um, a space shuttle back in 1990 so it's been in space for 27 years which is almost unbelievable so that's hubble um, and of course, at NASA, we're building the James Webb Space Telescope, which is the scientific successor to Hubble. 
launch in 2019. Now that telescope is huge. Um, it stands almost four stories tall, top to bottom. The, the Webb telescope will be by far the biggest telescope that we've ever sent to space. So it's going to be awesome. We've been told that Hubble has just released uh, a special image for the, for the festive season. Is it an object that we can actually see ourselves, or is it something that only Hubble can see? This new holiday image that Hubble's just released is an image of what's called Messier 79, or M79, and it is a globular cluster. So this is a collection of about 150,000 stars, all packed in really tightly, really close together, that exists on the outskirts of our Milky Way galaxy. And this is these stars are very old. Um, they're over 10 billion years old. And th there's this gorgeous new image from Hubble. So go, go look up this beautiful image from Hubble. But yeah, the great thing about a lot of these images in the Messier catalog in particular uh, is that you can see them with your own eyes. So if you go outside at night and look again towards that constellation of Orion, M79, this object uh, appears in the sky just below the constellation of Orion. You can't see it without a pair of binoculars or a small telescope. So it's not quite visible to the naked eye. But if you have a small telescope, uh, you can definitely seek out this really cool object. Now, very quickly, I know many of our listeners are hoping to receive a telescope for Christmas. Do you have any advice for uh, anyone starting out in astronomy? Um, well, yeah. So in general, for, for telescopes, um, I think that, you know, when I was a kid, I had just a Newtonian reflector telescope. Um, also, Dobsonian mount telescopes are, um, are good for amateur astronomers. Uh, the, the good thing is to sort of start out small until you figure out what sort of style of telescope you want and then you can upgrade to bigger telescopes excellent well amber it's been absolutely awesome talking to you and um hopefully we can catch up again sometime and uh talk a bit more absolutely sounds great thanks for having me on thanks again all right bye-bye bye Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, Spanhead Productions. .weebly.com That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com So that was absolutely awesome talking with Dr. Amber Strawn. She was a bit of a hurricane there, wasn't she? Because she, she had uh, a very tight schedule to um, to keep to. Yeah, we need to get her back on. She was a lot of fun to talk to. Not that I did a lot of talking on that one, mind you, but she's clearly a fountain of information. And there's lots of other things I wanted to talk to her about as well, because uh, looking through her CV, it is amazing. Mm -hmm. I hope everyone out there enjoyed our little escapade to Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland. Stay tuned to TGP Nominal for Christmas and we will be bringing out our holiday special and hopefully you'll enjoy that too. So take care one and all. John, thanks again for coming on board. Not a problem. And we'll speak to you again soon. If you want to get in touch with us, then send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com. Because your input is our output. Or click on the social media icons on the top left of the page at tgpnominal.weebly.com. Toodles!
station. This is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event.